Now to Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 30, down to verse 4 of chapter 10. Uh, We're focusing on just those uh, last four verses of Romans 9, verses 30 to 33 tonight. Hear the word of God. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brethren, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There is the eternal word of God that he has given to us. May he bless its reading and hearing to our ears and lives. This past week, I was introduced to the testimony of a young man who at the age of 12 was complicit to the murder of one of his friends He uh, assisted another young 12-year-old in the murder of their friend, a 13-year-old. This man, uh, he is now a man, but uh, at the age of 13, he was finally convicted of complicity to first-degree murder and uh, served uh, some time in jail. Uh, He was uh, not too long ago released But in that time frame, he came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, His testimony was uh, shared uh, through Allison's website. So if you're able uh, to look on her website and read it, uh, his testimony is there. One of the things that he found was just how unforgiving not just the world can be, but even Christians when it comes to the more grievous and heinous sins. In reading his testimony of conversion and what he has gone through, it was very easy to see he had grasped the sense of undeserved love and kindness, undeserved mercy and forgiveness from a holy God to an unworthy sinner. And it was one of those timely things where reading it, and I'm going to read a portion of it for you, where he expresses the truth of what Paul is getting at in this chapter about that undeserving grace of God and why the Jews found it so hard to embrace and so hard to see the Gentile nations coming in and receiving the mercies of God. Listen to what he says and in, in this line, that word scandal that he'll use here and as I read it is the word that is def- uh, translated in verse 33, offense. 
The rock of offense, that word offense, its Greek word is scandalon. It's scandalous grace. That's what it comes down to. It's offensive grace to a hardened heart in sin. He writes, grace is a scandal beyond comprehension. The church is not made up of people who think they are good. It is made up of people who know they are wicked. It is not made up of people who have achieved righteousness on their own. It is made up of people who have received righteousness from God as a free gift. This is the gospel. Christ did not die for good people. Christ died for the worst of the worst, which happens to be all of us. According to God's word, we are all hardened criminals, murderers deserving of God's wrath. This is the miracle and the wonder and the scandal and the shock of God's grace. It is truly out of this world, for no one in the world would have thought of something like this. In reality, and this is where it's going to hit home in relating to our text, in reality, the only people who really object to this kind of grace are the people who think that their works merit them some sort of position with God, and are offended when a murderer is put on equal footing with them before God. But that is exactly what the gospel does. Isn't that, isn't that quite a testimony? And it, and it is a mad. I mean, we have seen that in our own dealings with some inmates, and I'm not going to name their names, but we have seen the work of God's grace. And, and it can be scandalous to our fallen minds to consider how can God be so forgiving to such a one who has committed such a capital crime. But that is then to dismiss the heinous nature of our own sins and sinfulness before God. Because God's grace is scandalous. It's what Paul says in verse 33. God has laid in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. That is Jesus Christ Himself. And, and it, it, it meets a hardened and proud heart that, that resists this understanding. I deserve God's wrath. That God should be likening unto me because I'm not really a bad person. I'm pretty decent in my life. Why wouldn't I be received by God? And the testimony thus far in the whole letter of Romans that we've covered, and and we're going to see more of it again next week as we go into chapter 10, it's because our righteousness falls desperately short of the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. We are sinners. And unless our pride has been subdued by that truth to acknowledge it before a holy God, His grace is going to be scandalous just as much as Jesus is a rock of offense to our righteousness. This testimony does express what Paul has been getting at concerning why so few Jewish countrymen 
We're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He, the Lord Jesus, was a rock of offense to them. And and Jesus encountered this very uh, sentiment and attitude in His ministry to Israel. He told a parable of it. Matthew 20. You can read it. The parable of the workers. And how this Lord of a vineyard uh, was needing workers to come into his vineyard and help with the harvest. And so he went out early in the morning and found a group of men and said, uh, come and work in my vineyard and I'll give you a denarii. And, and then he went out at another hour and said to those at a different hour, come and work in my vineyard and I'll give you a denarii. And he kept going until uh, just an hour before the end of the day, he brought in more men and he said, come and work in my vineyard and I'll give you a denarii. And those who had been working all day in the heat of the day heard that these men who were only coming to work maybe an hour were gaining that wage of a denarii. And what happened in their hearts? Did they rejoice that these men were going to receive a day's wage? No, they began to covet and think in their hearts, well... If they're getting that for one hour's work, what am I going to be getting for a whole day's work? And then when they stood in line and they received the same amount as those who only worked an hour, they became angry and frustrated with the owner of the vineyard and say, why are you treating us like this? We've worked hard for you. We've done all of this work. We we did far more work than they did and you're treating them the same as you treat us. And it's the closing words of that parable that speak about the scandalous nature of God's grace. Where he says, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Is it not lawful for God to administer His grace as He chooses, not because any of us deserve it, but because He desires to bestow it? We can't grasp that, can we? Our fallen hearts hate that kind of grace because it sets everyone on equal footing before God. And it It depends on God, not us. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Listen to this next line in Matthew 20, 15 and 16. Or is your eye evil because I am good? (laughs) That's God speaking. When we presume His grace, when we think we deserve His grace, our eye is evil. So the last will be first and the first last for many are called but few are chosen. We are coming to verse 30 and Paul's final question is a concluding question about that reason why the majority of Israel did not believe in the Lord Jesus when He came even though they were God's chosen people. And why the majority of believers are in fact Gentiles who had little 
clue about God's righteousness and or Christ the Messiah. They were learning these things. And yet, as they heard them, they were coming in and pressing into the kingdom of heaven, taking it by force, as Jesus would say. And, and, and it all made clear, more clear to Israel. And that's what Paul has been explaining in chapter 9. The whole doctrine of election. That if we don't understand that the working of God's grace had begun before the foundation of this world in His electing and predestination of a people to Christ. If we don't see that as the beginnings of His grace, we've missed it. And Paul has been asking questions that no doubt confused the mind when so few Israelites uh, were evidently saved and so many Gentiles he wondered, can, can God's word and promises be trusted? Is God being righteous with election? And if election is true, then how can he still find fault with any of us? But as we've heard and we see, election isn't the problem. The problem comes right back to our hearts. Not with God not with the gospel. It comes back to who we are as sinners in our fallen, stubborn, rebellious, self-righteous estimation. And we have this issue that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought and we think so little of God and His grace. And that very truth about election comes out ringing clear again. If God had not decreed His electing grace, none would be saved. Period. Not one. The fact that we see His salvation in astounding numbers throughout the world shows that God's electing grace is working. (laughs) Is at work. And and so Paul comes in verse 30 to say, then what shall we say to these things? And and he sets before us in these verses a little bit of alliteration. I happen to get to it every now and then in our messages. But basically three points he expresses in verses 30 and 31 a contradiction in our minds. And then he brings in verse 32 a clarification of God's grace. And then in verse 33, a confirmation of Scripture to these things. And this brings more or less a conclusion to the doctrine of election and the issues that we may have with it. But you look in verses 30 and 31, you see the contradiction that he lays out that is visible to our eyes. We have on the one hand the Gentiles who weren't pursuing righteousness. In fact, it's an understatement for Paul to say they weren't pursuing righteousness. If you were to go over and read 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 uh, as pagans, uh, we see the litany of their other pursuit. It wasn't that they were not just pursuing righteousness. They were in fact pursuing 
unrighteousness. As pagans, they were godless, self-glorifying, boasters, proud, lovers of self and money, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It would be the last people that you would ever think of in even the climate of Paul's day where Israel as he has already reminded us back in verse 4 and 5, where Israel had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, the fathers who spoke about the coming Messiah and Christ Himself who came in the flesh and walked only in Israel. His whole ministry on earth was contained to Israel. And yet so few have believed. And the Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness, they attained it. <laughs> Isn't that strange? It's, there, there's a contradiction he's setting before us that we can see. It's interesting. That word attained in verse 30 is different from the word attained in verse 31. But what he's saying there to translate it more literally, he says the, the Gentiles who weren't pursuing righteousness laid hold of it. They gained it. They seized it when it was made clear to them. It was like, give us this righteousness. Please, O oh God. And on the other hand, Israel, Israel who was pursuing the law of righteousness. Who was according to God's law, the moral law that God had commanded them to give them wisdom in how they were to express their love to Him and their love to one another. The ceremonial law that they had through the priests and the sacrifices in the temple that gave to them the knowledge and wisdom of the work of Christ, the pattern that it was built upon that was seen in heaven by Moses, that was showing to them all that the Messiah would do on their behalf to enable them to come into the Holy of Holies and seek and worship God. And the civil law that would distinguish them as God's kingdom here on earth before all of the world. The Israelites were pursuing that righteousness which was according to the law. And yet they did not attain it. And that word attain means they did not reach it. They did not arrive at it. It isn't that they reached out and laid hold of it and seized it. It's a different word. It says that in all of their pursuits, they never arrived at that goal of righteousness. Israel who pursued righteousness never reached it. Gentiles who weren't pursuing it laid hold of it. And we're talking again about this righteousness of God that we need to be able to stand in His presence and not be cast out in judgment and placed under His wrath for all eternity. That's what we're talking about. Israel pursued it. 
never reached it. Gentiles who weren't pursuing it laid hold of it. And he asked that question in verse 32. Why? That contradiction is there. And in verse 32, he answers that question. Why? The clarification. And this answer that he gives does not focus on the grace of election. In verse 32, his answer focuses rather on the foolishness of Israel's determination. They were determined to attain a righteousness that was not of God Himself, but of their own work and doing. And they didn't understand that it completely fell short of God's glory. Think about it. The foolishness of Israel's determination is what he says here. Uh, they, They were trying to attain it by the works of the law and instead stumbled at the stumbling stone. And we're going to hear that's Christ. They stumbled at Christ because they didn't think they needed righteousness beyond what they were to able to accomplish in their own doing. Think about it with Psalm 14. Psalm 14 begins with this statement, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Was Israel foolish to say that? No. Paul goes on in chapter 10 to say they they had a, a zeal for God. But it wasn't according to knowledge. And and you can almost hear Israel when it came to this psalm and the singing of this psalm is that they would have said, the fool in his heart says, there is no God, they're corrupt, they've done abominable works, there is none who does good, and they would have applied that solely to the world around them and not to their own life. That's the foolishness of Israel. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And we know Paul has borrowed those words early on in this letter to the Romans to show that both Jew and Gentile are included in this testimony from God when he says twice in Psalm 14, there is none who does good. There is none who does good. No, not one. Israel would not include themselves in that number. They were saying in their own minds, there is none who does good, no, not one, except for me. (laughs) And that was the foolishness. And because of that pride issue of self-righteousness, they were not seeking the righteousness of God that could only be gained by faith. Verse 32, they did not seek it by faith in Jesus Christ. They were seeking it on their own efforts. It's like you go back to the history of Abraham in Genesis. Genesis 15 and 16. 
And, and, and this, this is Abraham at the time when he uh, was embraced in that justifying grace of faith in God. When in Genesis 15, he is lamenting that he doesn't have an heir to inherit, and yet looking at God who had promised him an heir, and from whom would come the blessing of God's mercies to the whole of the earth. That gospel had been preached to Abraham back when God called him out of the Ur of Chaldeans to come into a land that He would give him. And by Abraham, He would bring forth the seed who would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And and in Galatians 3, Paul says that, that was the gospel proclaimed to Abraham and he began to follow God and he began to seek the Lord and to call upon His name and to offer sacrifices according to God's will and wisdom. And in Genesis 15, he's lamenting. It's been years later. That promise hasn't been realized. And he's saying, God, didn't you say this was going to happen? And God told him, look at the stars, look at the sand. As many as you see, so shall your descendants be. And in Genesis 15.6, we hear those words, And Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was like a conversion, if you will, in his own heart. That he said, I have to trust in the Lord. But did he give up trying to lay hold of God's promises apart from faith? (laughs) The next chapter... He tries to have his own seed through Hagar. (laughs) He struggled to attain this promise by faith. Well, Israel, with the coming of Christ, they stumbled at this stumbling stone. They would not look to the righteousness that could only be received by faith. They continued on in spite of Christ Himself being before them and saying, no, it is Me that your faith must be in. You have no righteousness sufficient for the holiness of God, but I have come to give it to you. And they stumbled at that because they thought the works that they were doing according to God's law would be sufficient. That's why that contradiction is there. That's why Israel, who pursued righteousness, never reached it. Because we can't. There is no amount of goodness that you can do in your life that will ever be sufficient to atone for the smallest of sin that you commit. What you would call a white lie before God is a travesty against who He is as God who is truth. And if you think that telling that white lie was insignificant and all I have to do is do something good and say something pleasing or or maybe just do an act of kindness to somebody else and that will cover that white lie. You are committing a lie. You are saying that that, that that sin that blemishes your life now can simply be hidden from God. But it can't. It's, it's still there on you. It's like, I think, it's like anyone who tries working 
with tar. <laughs> I've done it a number of times. And you know, I always put on my old and most rugged of clothing because I know this simple truth. It doesn't matter how much I try to protect my hands or even my face or my hair. I can cover myself as much as I want with old clothes and start working with gloves and everything and trying to be as careful as I can as I scoop it out of the container and apply it to those shingles that need to be tarred over. I come down and I have tar on my hands. (laughs) I can't get rid of it. My friends, that's sin. And our goodness can never, ever remove the smallest stain of sin on our lives. Israel thought it could. And that's why they never attained the righteousness of God. Because they would not seek it by faith in Jesus Christ. They stumbled at the stumbling stone. Jesus Christ is this stumbling stone. It's like Christ being that huge rock that blocks that narrow way over the cavern of death that we have to get over in order to reach heavenly glory and eternal life. And we are incapable of climbing over that rock We need to, in God's grace, be lifted up and placed upon it. We stumble at this rock. And it is God's grace that comes and meets us. And if we do not believe in Jesus Christ, we have no forgiveness of sin. We have no Righteousness sufficient for that day of judgment. We have no cleansing from our stains and iniquities of sin. We have no eternal life. It comes down to the same point. If we could save ourselves, you can almost hear Paul just trying to reason with the people of God, Israel. If we could save ourselves, then why did God speak so much about needing to send the Messiah? (laughs) Israel couldn't get it. If we could attain a righteousness that would be acceptable to God, then why would the Son of God have to come in the flesh and be our representative before God, both in death and in life? Why would we need a mediator? And why would Christ bother to humiliate Himself with such a cursed death? If we could attain any kind of righteousness that would be acceptable to God. You see, this is how Jesus is this rock of offense. He comes and He becomes offensive to our pride which just proves our sinfulness before a holy and gracious God. And that brings us to verse 33 in this confirmation of Scripture, where Paul brings together here 
uh, two scripture texts, Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16 to speak about what God has done in Christ. He has laid in Zion. In other words, He has laid even in the midst of all of His elect this stone of stumbling, this rock of offense. That if you are desiring to come and attain a righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, so that you can stand before God on that day of judgment, and in in Christ, looking unto the Lord Jesus as the one whose sacrifice has accomplished the removal of your condemnation, And the one who, in His resurrection, has brought about that justifying grace that you need, that forgiveness of sin, and that acceptance by God. If you are looking unto the Lord Jesus, you you have to stumble before Him, if you will. You have to fall before Him and and confess what that tax collector confessed when he stood in the temple. God Be merciful to me, a sinner. Or like Augustus' top lady wrote in his hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. We have to fall before this stone and believe, and believe in Christ. And you will be saved. Look what he says there. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. But you will be put to shame if you try to stand before God's court of absolute justice and defend yourself. You know, that's something you often hear and see when a a man who has committed a crime and comes to court and he thinks that he has enough intelligence of the legal system to defend himself. Even lawyers get lawyers to defend them before the judge. It is a foolish defendant who thinks and tries to defend himself before the court. Well, God is saying even more in absolute terms in Jesus Christ, you will never stand before me in judgment without the Redeemer's blood covering you, without His righteousness being a garment over you. Jesus even declared this very thing in Matthew 21:44. He said, speaking of himself, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. And it's good to be broken. <laughs> whoever falls on Christ is having his pride, his self-righteousness, his ego. He's having all of himself, of whom he thinks of in his own person. He's having all of that broken. And he's brought to this place where out of a broken and contrite heart, he looks to God and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you know what he says? A broken and contrite heart. I will never despise. He'll receive you. You won't be put to shame. 
It is good to fall on this stone and be broken. It is good to fall at the feet of Christ and say, I need you, Lord Jesus. I believe in you. But Jesus went on to say in Matthew 21, 44, on whomever this stone falls, it will grind him to powder. And what he is saying there is if you come before God without faith in Christ, you will be cast out in judgment to experience the terrors of hell for all eternity. There is nothing for you before the court of God except for condemnation because you would not fall on the stone. The stone falls on you and grinds you to powder. That's the force of these words. And Israel found themselves in this circumstance. They did not attain righteousness because they did not seek it by faith. But my friends, Christ is the one. We heard it at the call. Come to me. Come to me. That's his yearning. You know, that's what scripture says. Today is the day of grace and the time of God's salvation. This is the time where his mercy is ready to meet any and all who fall upon Christ and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and you will not be put to shame. That's his promise. And I beg you, I urge you, turn to Christ and know life. Call upon his name and you will be saved. Don't let this stone crush you, but be broken upon it. Let's pray.